Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. Today, I'd like to welcome Stephen Griffiths. He is the Director of Consumer Insights at Level 2. He leads the consumer research for Level 2 mobile app, including segmentation, journey mapping, and persona development. He is passionate to get a deep understanding of consumer behavior and helping companies design products and services that solve human needs. Welcome, Stephen. How are you? Great. Doing well. Good to be on the podcast, Darshan. Pleasure to talk to you today. So let's just start from the beginning. Tell me about your journey and some of the aha moments that have led you to the world of consumer insights. Sure. So my journey into insights was a little interesting. I think I ended up using a research method to get into insights without realizing it. Uh, So I graduated college in 2009 and, uh, you know, interviewed with a lot of different companies, nothing worked out. And so I had a few months to sort of figure out what I was going to do. I was newly married at the time, living with my in-laws. So uh, my my wife and others were like, oh, what's next? I'm like, I don't know. Let me figure it out. Like, I don't know what what job I want either. Um, And so um, ultimately, I ended up trying to get as much insight as I could for what I wanted to do with my career. And so looked online, looked like salary information for new jobs. Uh, market research analyst was like one of the top trending jobs at the time. So like, oh yeah, that, that bodes well. I looked back. Um, so I have an episode on this about um, the keys to choosing a career. And, um, and based on that, I talk about the seven stories method where you look at like your favorite experiences when you were successful and when you really enjoyed it and you understand what are the themes from that. And so a lot of that, I realized, wow, I enjoy, I enjoy numbers. I enjoy um, talking to people. I enjoy like coming up with a solution and, and seeing it implemented in real life. And a lot of those are, and I enjoy um, you know, working with businesses. And so like, wow, marketing research seems like a good fit. And so, and then I ended up um, interviewing probably two dozen people from my alumni. I'm reaching out and, and doing informational interviews and learning more about their jobs and talk to some marketing researchers who really enjoyed what they did. And I thought, wow, this could be a really good fit. And so um, ultimately came that, I printed out business cards, didn't have much experience, but you know, market research analyst, you know, I'm positioning myself up there. I, I literally drove to like every market research company within like a 50 mile radius of where I lived to, you know, visiting them, handing out my cards and things like that. Ended up uh, landing a job at Nielsen. But I think the real uh, test of it was, um, was working there. And, you know, what, do I really like this job that I've got myself into? And after, you know, a year or two, I said, wow, this, I really enjoy this. And so that's helped me get into the insights career that, that I'm in today. So what was it that interested you when you were talking to your friends and what was it your friends thought would interest you as well in market research that led you to say, I'm going to pursue market research? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fun mixture of a number of disciplines, a little bit of psychology. So I grew up overseas. And so just living in other places where people do things differently than we do in America, and just leads me to think, huh, at first glance, it seems uh, counterintuitive, maybe what uh, other cultures and other places do. And as you learn more about it, you understand the psychology behind it. And actually, in their context, it makes perfect sense. And just because the context is a little different in the United States. And so, um, so the psychology piece was intriguing to me about insights. I've always been a sort of a penchant for numbers for like quantifying what's going on. And so the ability to quantify that was really exciting. And then I really enjoy talking to people. And so observing people, talking to people, interviewing, that is appealing as well. And then I did want to do something more in the business sector. I'd done an internship 
at the U.S. Embassy before and just felt like uh, private sector is where I wanted to be. And so all this sort of came together to realize this is something that I think would be really interesting. It was interesting listening to you. It makes me remind me of why I got interested in it as well. I think it's the psychology, understanding human behavior. And if you really think about it, what really is market research, it's structured curiosity, right? And, you know, being curious about people and things uh, is what also attracted me as well. So, you know, we in the industry, uh, there's a big shift uh, away from the word research to insights. And a lot of people use the word insights. So I'm curious, how do you define insights? Yeah, I mean, I think insights is a little broader than uh, market research, right? So this is anything that you uncover about the marketplace, about your customer dynamic, even about business processes that maybe requires a little uh, thought and research behind that can really help the business grow. And so um, I think broadening it a little bit to insights allows you to think a little more holistically. It doesn't have to be just a survey. It's not just talking to members. It could be observing things or understanding a business opportunity then and connecting it to maybe latent um, consumer needs that can result in insights and, and ultimately help the business grow. Yeah. And to me, it seems insights, you have to do a, a deeper digging, right? You have to kind of get to that uh, truth of that core that really is driving something. And that often goes beyond just going beyond just the facts and observations. It's digging a little bit deeper. No, it certainly is. You know, and I think, you know, it reminds me a little bit of a lot of foundational research that companies do. You know, I think sometimes, especially when you're in business and maybe the business doesn't understand the value of research and insights, there's a, a tendency to focus on tactical research and very much like, okay, so how do you help this specific ad campaign be more effective? Or how do we help this specific new product be more effective? And there's certainly research that can help with that. But I think sometimes the biggest aha moments come with some of the foundational research that's about the broader category or about your customer um, population in general, that maybe in the short term doesn't have a ton of like, oh, this exactly tells you what new product to launch or what advertising campaign to do or how to specifically price your products. But it's that foundational research that's this you know, as it says, foundation of the building you're trying to build. And so you can easily, um, uh, all the other tactical research that you do on top of that, suddenly you have a foundation. It makes a huge difference. You know, I was uh, working with a company once. They, um, they were a category leader and uh, they do um, some pretty foundational research every five years or so. And so as they were doing, so this is like in market research speak, like ANU or like attitude and usage, where you're looking at all your competitors and category usage and you know, what you're doing there. And they're usually very expensive because you're looking at all your competitors and at coming out of it, you might not be very clear. In this case, they actually recognized that. Um, so this is uh, cleaning supplies that some of the devices that were used around the home had upgraded since they'd last done their five year foundational study. And so they really needed to change the formulation of their cleaning products in order to um, you know, work well with those, um, those cleaning devices. And so um, it really led to some pretty foundational changes for how they formulated the products and how they marketed them and was a huge opportunity. So it wasn't specifically like you talk to one person like, oh, I would like you to reformulate things. No, of course not. But when you understand like, wow, um, the ability to clean with these new devices was uh, less effective than it was five years ago. And like, I wonder why that is. Oh, it's because like people are buying different things in their homes. And so we need to reformulate our products to do that. And so there's some of that. That's actually a great example of a very tactical <laughs> insight that comes from foundational research. You don't always have that. But I think it's a good reminder that sometimes these really expensive studies that give you this um, underlying knowledge can be really powerful. So what are three ways that you've uncovered aha moments and valuable insights? And maybe you can give us some examples. Yeah, happy to. So um, 
you know, I, the three ways I'd say are external, um, uh, external inspiration. The second way would be creating a body of knowledge. And uh, the third one I'd say is this um, fast iteration um, to in the real world to understand and uncover insights. Um, you know, when you think of external, so I remember working on the um, snack bar category for General Mills. And uh, at that time, there's a lot of uh, trends going on in the food and, and there always is, but at that time specifically, there was a big um, high protein, low sugar. And, um, and so as we thought about like, how does that come to life and how do we think about that as a, a snack bar manufacturer, we looked um, competitively and I specifically was like, okay, I got to understand what's happening in the external, external environment. And so looked in like ice cream with halo top ice cream and um, looked in yogurt with triple zero, the yogurt is out there. So it's like low sugar and high protein um, kinds of offerings and was able to put all those along with like consumer sentiment and interviews and what are people seeing on social media and sort of putting it all together to realize like, okay, what's the insight here? And we realized that this like high protein, uh, low sugar, um, way forward was um, a really viable way to go and ultimately led uh, the Fiber One brand to launch a sub-brand called Protein One that was really effective. Like um, it was hard to keep up with supply that first year it launched because it's just selling off the shelves so quickly. And it was really fun in those situations to realize that that external um, insight allows you to get insights. A lot of times when we're working in categories in our market, if we just look at our close-in competitors, it's hard to come with something really new because there's often a lot of similarities among them. And so looking to a totally unrelated category or totally unrelated business model and bringing that in is a really good source of insight. Were you guys also looking at what was driving that? Because I would speculate what was driving that is uh, losing weight as well as having a quick snack before or after a workout. Was that what was driving that? Yeah, it's super interesting. A lot of those products um, market themselves as uh, sort of bodybuilding and staying in fit and muscle building. And, and that's certainly there. But I think we did find this subculture of uh, people who then used a lot of those bodybuilding sort of marketed products to say, hey, I actually want to use that to manage my weight, right? I, maybe I can eat this one bar, this high protein, and then not have to eat as much food. And maybe it'll keep me fuller longer. So this idea of um, more satiety was definitely a cue, even though the marketing was all about, you know, athletes and, you know, extreme sports, you know, most people aren't consuming it that way, but it was clearly looking for those same benefits. And so that was helpful also to communicate to the, the marketing and brand team so they could say, oh, this is relevant for us because, um, you know, Fiber One at the time was not a, you know, athlete only uh, brand, and yet it could still uh, very clearly uh, resonate with their members and their consumers. You also talked about the third thing, uh, testing hypotheses in the real world. And I think you'd mentioned at one point to me about something about a, a waffle store test that you had conducted. What was that about? Yeah. So, I mean, just this idea of um, whenever you're doing research, there's different uh, stages you do, right? So first you're trying to identify hypotheses, then you're uh, testing, um, uh, and then you're um, gathering all the research to understand, you know, what might that look like, have a mental model of what you think is going on. And then sometimes you just got to test it in the real world. There's not enough research that can sometimes get you where you need to go. And that was the case. So I was um, at a different role at General Mills. Uh, they launched the Pillsbury Stuffed Waffle at 7-Eleven, which is a big success, super fun and exciting. So imagine like sausage, egg, and cheese inside a sweet waffle that then you can get warm out of a convenience store. It's delicious. So, um, so they launched this waffle and it, the packaging in the, for the waffle was a cardboard box as opposed to most other things that are in like a, a thin paper bag or something that's easy or foil or something like that that's in warmer. And, you know, at first 
the team thought like, well, this is, you know, communicates what it is on the inside and, um, you know, puts our brand name on there and stands out a bit on the shelf. So it isn't confused with all the other items there. You know, that's good to stand out at shelf. That makes sense. And it was interesting um, through some other research we were doing, we walk into a store. Um, so I basically started eating um, store, uh, convenience store, a gas station food, like for the rest of the year, because I'm just trying to immerse myself in the category, right? And so, you know, eating sandwiches and like, what's good and what's bad and what do I like? And, um, you know, what are stores doing in different places? And it was really fun. Um, and then uh, there's this one time I walked into a store and there's only a couple items in the warmer. And I looked at the stuffed waffle and it was in a cardboard box and the others were, were not. And I thought like, wow, I don't know that that looks very fresh. This <laughs> is sitting in the warm. It's in a cardboard box. Like, was it, you know, sent in somewhere? It doesn't cue freshness when it's in a thick cardboard box. And so I thought, well, maybe there's a consumer. And we'd heard from um, consumers a lot is that I really like the packaging. I don't like this. And that's what's tricky about Insight is everyone is telling you lots of things. And so piecing out what piece of the customer feedback is relevant. Um, versus some that maybe isn't as relevant for your business is tricky. And so in this case, we started, that's this hypothesis, like I think putting it in like a craft bag with a window in it would um, help it. And by the way, it's being prepared the same as other items in there. It wasn't like less fresh than anything else that was in that case. And so I was like, but it wasn't communicating that. And so we thought like, okay, what else do we do? And um, and so that hypothesis was maybe we can do a craft bag. And um, it's actually really difficult to find people uh, like if you look at market research um, panels and things like that, there's not a lot of people that eat hot food regularly from gas stations that participate in marketing research panels. It is not a high incidence group. And so we said, okay, how to test this? Well, let's put it into a store and, and figure it out. And so um, worked with a cross-functional team in order to do that. So we had um, a, a, a small C-store chain that was able to work with us, uh, a number of C-stores around the area. And we basically set up a test. We had the control with our current packaging. We had the new with the new packaging. Um, we you know, had to control a number of variables and talk to managers and make sure the waffles are shipped in the right places and all that logistical stuff. And ultimately decide, okay, which one actually sells better and found that our hypothesis was correct that you know, quantitatively it sold as good or better than the boxed one. So that was a pro for the new packaging. And um, qualitatively, we talked to food service managers and store managers, and they also preferred uh, the craft bag that was thin with the window on it versus the cardboard box. And so it was sort of a win across uh, across the board. And then members and uh, consumers, I should say, who went into stores and um, were looking at it also had that positive feedback for the craft bags. We thought, great to make the switch. And they're often... And it actually led to 20% package savings because the craft bag actually not only was more consumer first, but was also more affordable. And so um, that was a great to have a win-win in that situation. So once again, it's a situation where like we couldn't do enough tests to really feel confident about what we had to do and sometimes need to go into the real world to understand uh, what's what. Yeah. And I think you mentioned a couple of interesting things. One is you said it's sometimes hard to ferret through the noise. So what tips would you give someone to kind of get to an insight and, and recognize that this is actually an insight versus noise. Are there any tips you, you tell young, you know, people coming into the insights world that, Hey, this is the way you kind of do it since you've had years of experience now. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not easy, right? I mean, I think there's a reason why good insights professionals have, have a job. Um, it's not always clear. You know, I think there's a couple of things you can do, you know, it's classic synthesis. So sometimes, uh, so I ran into this at, um, uh, Nielsen, for instance. So we were doing new product forecasting for new products and got to work with a lot of Fortune 500 uh, consumer goods brands. And very often it would happen where, you know, you're looking into a study and there's one number that says, oh, this is a, a strong idea. And another number that says, this is a bad idea. 
And, you know, junior researchers would come in and say, I don't know what to do. Like one number says good, one number says bad. Like, what do I do? And usually it just means gather more information. And so whether that's looking externally, okay, products that are similar to this that have launched in the market, what does that in-market data tell us? And Nielsen has access to a lot of that with their panel. Um, and then you also look at trends like, okay, what are people saying to it? You look in the open-ended comments, what are people saying there? Um, and so you look at all this kind of information. And once you synthesize that, that's what I'm mentioning earlier, sort of this body of knowledge, um, that's where you start to realize, okay, two data points doesn't make sense. But now that I have 10 different data points, qual and quant, then I say, oh, actually seven of them suggest that it is this way. I'm going to go that way instead. And so that's why a lot of times it's, um, so to answer your question, I'd say gather more insights and input. Um, and then typically looking at the quality of each of those inputs, which you believe more uh, better. Um, and then that'll help you um, make a decision of, of where you need to go. But it also sounds like what you're saying is also a striking a balance between quantitative and qualitative and have you kind of figured out what that kind of balance is? I know it varies by product and industry and stuff, but I'm just curious. Have you kind of uh, said, you know, we, we should usually try to strive for this kind of mix between the two? Yeah. I mean, traditional marketing research would say uh, generally you start qual first to understand some of the, the big themes and the whys behind things. And then once you identify the key variables that you're sort of debating about, then you can do quantitative research. The reality is that, that there's a cycle back and forth, right? Sometimes you'll go, um, you know, in the case of the stuff waffle, for instance, where, um, you know, maybe quant information says one thing and you want to have qual to understand, is there anything else that we're um, not understanding? You know, I have been on projects before where, you know, quantitatively uh, things look really good. But uh, when you uh, understand the qual behind it, you realize actually there's a, a, a reason that maybe isn't easy to measure, isn't easy to quantify, that's actually a big factor here that we should keep in mind. And so it really just depends on the situation. That's not like one trumps the other. It's definitely hand in hand. So why are consumer insights important for designing products and services? Oftentimes people say you really can't ask uh, customers about how to design a product or service. But I think you would say it's actually quite important to gain insights for that as well, right? Yeah, it's certainly important. Um, you know, it's, I, I think a lot of times, and you know, um, you know, Apple's famous for saying this, right? That, oh, don't listen to marketing research. They would never tell you what you need to know. And, and in some ways, when you're thinking about frame-breaking innovation, there's some truth to that, right? Most of us are accustomed to the environment that we're in, and it's hard for us to imagine that future. We're just, we're very good at maybe giving little tweaks based on our environment, but if you want big changes, sometimes that's harder. Um, and so certainly, you know, to answer your question, you know, why do you need insights? One is to get that underlying needs. And so when, um, you know, Swiffer was a great example of this, right? There's an underlying need for, um, for, for cleaning products and specifically something that um, they can be um, very hypoallergenic and clean. And so this idea that you use your Swiffer uh, mop and then you can take off the end and dispose of it. Um, so it was like a big idea. And so it's this underlying, if you'd ask anybody, what kind of mop would you like? They wouldn't, they would never articulate Swiffer, right? But if you're like, oh, I need something that goes around corners and can go under things really well. And is actually like for each way under that dining, that dining room table on my hardwood floor. Um, and so they thought, oh, well, what if we had something that was extendable? And then like, and I hate, you know, what, it's a big pain point for mops, right? I don't know, like, get it into the water and like rinse it off and get the bucket and all that stuff. And so I thought, oh, well, if it's disposable, then it's a lot easier too. So it's this understanding of what are the underlying needs of the need to reach, the need, um, you know, easier cleanup, easier prep. And then they said, okay, well, Swiffer meets all of these needs and it was very successful and a very fast buy-in. Um, and in the consumer goods cleaning world, it's like held up as a case study for a lot of things um, because it's been so successful in meeting those underlying needs. 
Yeah, I think it's true. A lot of times, maybe consumers can't tell you how to solve the problem, but they can absolutely tell you what the problem is or what they're currently doing. And then that's what's up to you to see opportunities to maybe make that easier, better, more convenient, or even less costly. So tell me a little bit about your role at uh, Level 2. Uh, you're the Director of Consumer Insights. What does that role entail? Yeah, so at Level 2, so this is owned by um, United Health Group. And it's basically a diabetes care company that's, um, you know, within the broader uh, context, we operate fairly independently. And it's a super interesting problem space because uh, type 2 diabetes, right, one of the uh, leading causes of um, uh, health challenges in America today. And what's interesting about type 2 diabetes is it's, um, you know, primarily caused by uh, lifestyle choices. And so the, talk to any doctor, the best way to um, work through type two diabetes is lifestyle changes, changing diet, changing exercise, and that can massively alleviate a lot of the symptoms of type two diabetes and actually get you into remission. And so that's um, that's basically the approach that level two is taking is saying, how do we help people? And so that's what level two is all about. So we uh, provide a, a glucose monitor that people can wear. It sends um, updates to their phone so they can understand what their blood sugar is. And that allows them to see, oh, you know, if I eat this, if I exercise here, what does that do to my blood sugar? And that alone makes a huge difference for people seeing the effect of what their choices are having on their health. Um, also, you know, activity tracker. We have a mobile app, and so it's and we have lifestyle coaches that are you know working with our members. So, how do we give the coaching, the support, the feedback in order to make and help them make their own choices? And ultimately, every member's journey is different. And so that's what's so exciting about you know, consumer insights is it's not like a one size fits all. It's hey, for this member, maybe it's you know doing steps while they're watching television, and that makes a big difference for them. Maybe it's just switching out the you know four. Um, four bowls of ice cream for like half a bowl of ice cream during lunch and then going walking afterwards. You know, how do we make these little uh, changes in order to uh, better um, uh, address and become healthier? And it's, it's made a big difference. So it's super fun working on the voice of the customer um, and really hearing feedback from our members and incorporating it into the experience here at level two. So I guess what you're saying, you, you try to segment the market into different personas and stuff. Is that correct? Yeah, that's definitely a part of the work. Um, you know, and it's very different in the healthcare space versus uh, consumer goods. Um, consumer goods is interesting. Most categories can be consumed by anyone. If you think of granola bar, you think of laundry detergent, like pretty much like your household penetration is like 90 plus percent, right? For a lot of these things. And so it's interesting. Um, in, in, and so segmenting is a little more nuanced, right? Like is it is the person who buys it once a month, like really that different than someone who buys it twice a month? Like, uh, you know, and you can do it on demographics and there's certain things you can look at, but um it's, it's a lot, much more nuanced, that segmentation versus in healthcare, it's literally like, well, you know, a person who's on this type of medication really does have different health needs and approaches than someone who maybe isn't diabetic at all or someone who's pre-diabetic. And so um, understanding those different nuances makes it a lot easier and the needs are much clearer in terms of creating personas and, and creating um, segments. Yeah, because I mean, I think you have an interesting challenge. You're not only designing products, but you're also designing communication because even if people want to have better health, it's actually getting to actually make lifestyle changes. And that's where the challenge is, right? Is how do you actually communicate that? And I guess in order to do that, you really have to find different segments that are open to different types of messaging. Can you give me an example of maybe two different segments and how you do different messaging to them just to get an idea? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of different ways of cutting it, right? So there's all um, health-wise, right? So someone who is on a lot of diabetes medications and really working to stop that, that's a different segment. You might message things differently versus someone who maybe is on one diabetes medication, the side effects aren't that significant. So for them, the motivation to like get off medication isn't the same. And so you would message uh, differently to those groups and, and treat them a little bit differently based on what their needs and what they're looking for. Um, I think the uh, other way to segment can also be based on uh, communication and outreach, right? So, I mean, classic example, people who will read every email you send them so that that's a segment versus people who like won't read emails. And so maybe it's just in-app notifications that makes more difference or some people that they, it's through their level two coach and you got to communicate stuff to the coach and they pass it on to members and, and that's an easy way for it. So I think there's a lot of different ways to segment the market, uh, but you're exactly right. Uh, messaging is one way. Um, the types of products and services that are offered is another way. Um, and sort of putting that all together, that's uh, part of the, the fun of creating a segmentation for a business. I think you previously said that having an analytics mindset is crucial to succeeding market research. Are there certain steps that you take to develop this type of mindset or is this something you've done over the years that uh, honed in your skills a little bit further with analytics? Yeah, so uh, analytics is really important. I think when you think of the steps of analytics, you know, you're cleaning the data, um, you're then, so if you have like a big data set, you're going to do analysis on it or build a model for it. You're going to clean your data. You're going to have some sort of like hypothesis for what's doing what, like to have a mental model. Oh, I think that this plus this is going to lead to this outcome. And so you have that, that mental model for it. Um, then you use all the data to, to train it. And then ultimately the big test comes when you implement it. So like, okay, to, does it actually work on this untested data set or when it's implemented into business, does it have the impact that you'd expect it to have? Um, and so it's this, I, so this analytic mindset of like hypothesis driven and then, you know, getting outcome and then continuing to iterate on that similar to the point about like fast iteration, I think is big, you know, there's this, um, lean startup book that's really focused on this, like agile, fast iteration, um, piece. And this has been a dynamic that's gone on for a long time, right? They're just articulating it well in the book, but I think that's going to have a big impact on our marketing research as well. And so, you know, as I think back to, I worked on the cereal business at, uh, General Mills, we're trying to kind of come up with a new product. And so it was interesting within the new product development cycle, we do that over and over where there's a hypothesis, you test it. Okay. You get new ideas, maybe more tweaks, more hypotheses. And so through that, you test, you know, over a hundred different ideas and you narrow it down. You continue to tweak and pivot and make changes um, over you know, iteration after iteration until you get to a much better idea that uh, is, is viable in the marketplace. And so I think it's similar to that analytics idea of where you got to like, um, you know, test, create a model, test it. Okay. Try a new model, test it, try a new model, test it to really get to a model that makes sense. And it's the same thing in marketing research where um, you got to continue to iterate to get there. And it's super exciting. One of the um, uh, products that I worked on in the cereal division, um, they actually launched a new brand called Plentiful. And so imagine like a really good um, healthy flake um, that is then covered in peanut butter and not like a super sweet peanut butter, but just a little bit of you've got some sweetness to it and um, a nut and seed cluster. So it's really getting after this job of like something that's really tasty and delightful, but also can keep you full, which is a, one of the challenges with breakfast cereal today. And so um, it was really fun seeing that all come together. And I think it was rated like a nine out of 10 stars from the top cereal reviewers saying it's one of the best peanut butter cereals he's ever had. Um, so it was like super fun to, to put those things together and you get a good product at the end because you've done so much iteration to get it there. It certainly was not in the first week of ideation. Nothing was close there. But as we continue to piece it and, and go um, and iterate, that's how we were able to land. So I think one of the things you do at uh, level two is you create customer journey maps, correct? 
Can you maybe tell our audience what is a customer journey map and why are they important? Yeah. So in the consumer goods world where I did a lot of my career, there's less journey mapping going on because you don't have a direct um, tie to some of your members. So if you think of your traditional consumer good, um, say I'm selling like um, a bathroom cleaning agent, right? Um, Typically, I'm going to sell that to Walmart or Target who is then going to sell it to a consumer. And so I actually don't have a lot of detailed information. You know, I, I do studies and surveys on sites. So I have an idea who these are, but I don't like have a lot of information on them. And so as opposed to like a mobile app where you literally know everyone who's using a mobile app because they've downloaded the app. And so you're able, and usually they like volunteer to give, Oh, here's my name and here's my email because I'm, I'm using your app. And so you have all that first party data. And so it's a very different. And when you think of that first party data, suddenly this whole experience specifically with any tech products or a website or a mobile app. And that's where journey mapping is super helpful. So to answer your question, like, what does that look like? Um, typically you go step-by-step in a member um, process of doing a certain task and then identifying where the pain points are. So think of a typical mobile app. Okay. So they, they open up the app. Oh, maybe every time they're prompted to put in their password and it's hard for them to remember the passwords. Maybe that's a pain point, right? Then they go into the app and they, they set their own goals. And, but actually the app didn't uh, remember the goal they set three months ago, just the goal they set last week. Wouldn't it be nice to have the historical view of some of the other goals they've set. It's like, okay, there's another pain point there. And then, oh, you know, members like really love that they're able to see, you know, this um, maybe a historical chart of what they've done up with some of their other progress. And that's like really exciting to them. So you have this chart that you're able to have where you look at emotions at each of the stages, and then you can also identify where the pain points are. And then that allows you as a business to then you can quantify those pain points to understand which is most uh, important. And then you know where to go after. And then whenever you're trying to add a new element to your mobile app or a new experience, you then think, okay, where does that fit in with this, um, with this part? And if someone is like, oh, we need to ask a, you know, a really complicated survey, right? As they open the app and like, well, we know that's a hard place because they're already stressed out about getting the password. And maybe it's not easy in some other ways. So like, maybe let's find a different part of the journey of where they're opening the app to, to serve a survey or do something else there. That just is a quick example, right? So that's the idea of journey mapping is that you're looking at the entire experience, understanding the pain points. And so it helps you as a business understand where to focus. Having done this for a while now, uh, when it comes to apps, are there certain core things you say, you know, this is really applicable, these kind of insights or this is really applicable across many apps? Are there certain things that you've kind of learned, like these are three core things that are definitely important to a successful app? Yeah. um, So I'd say in general, a lot of apps focus on sometimes vanity metrics. So how many daily active users did I have? How many weekly active users did I have? And some of these things that sound really impressive and you can benchmark against other mobile apps out there. And I think sometimes we miss the point that the goal of a mobile app is to add value. And so you got to think about it from the member perspective, like, okay, what value are they getting from using my app? And are they getting that value every time? And so, um, you know, figuring that out it is sometimes challenging. So Amy Buker, um, so she's uh, does a lot of work with mobile apps and specifically behavioral design. And uh, I actually interviewed her on, on my podcast, um, uh, episode 23, somewhere around there with Amy Buker's um, insights there. But uh, basically she talks about that. How do we make sure that mobile apps, specifically health-focused ones, are really focused on making their lives better? Because sometimes imagine you're a health app and you're saying, hey, I want really strong daily active users. So I'm going to like, send them notifications all the time and get them to come in. And you have to think about like, is that really make their life better? Like is really checking a mobile app. I mean, 
it depends on the mobile app, I guess, but it doesn't always need to be checked every day. And sometimes that doesn't lead to better health outcomes. And so you have to think about like, what is it that we're trying to measure rather than focusing on metrics that maybe look really good to investors or within the company, but don't really add value to the end user. And how do you measure that value? How, how have you done it? I think there's a lot of different ways. Um, so, I mean, qualitatively, right, you can talk to people and get stories of like what's adding value and what isn't. And that's always very eye-opening. You know, when you have the product team on and you're, you're talking to your members and you're like, oh, tell me what's most important. And usually there's like one, two or three simple things. And the product team has worked on, you know, 15 things that they're hoping will all be mentioned. Of course, they're not, right? And so like, that's a good litmus test for what matters and what doesn't. Um, and then obviously you can look at outcomes. So um, some health apps um, have people, you know, add in their weight change over time or you know, whatever tracking measure there are. And so you can say, okay, does, does weight loss actually happen as they're using more of the app? And if, you know, people use it every day and it doesn't make a difference for weight loss and that's the goal of your app, then, okay, then you know, that's a good limits test for maybe how do we change that? So we focus on the stuff that matters for that outcome. So based on the knowledge and experience you have now, what advice or tips would you give a younger Steven who was starting out in the uh, pursuit of insights as, as a career, uh, as you did earlier on, if you were to talk to a younger version of yourself, what uh, advice would you give, give yourself? I'd probably say look in rather than out. I think especially early in my career, I relied a lot on those around me. So as I thought about what do I want to, what projects do I want to do? What, what's my next rotation going to be? What do I want from my next opportunity? I'd usually think inside, oh, what does my manager say is a good idea for me to go? Or what do my coworkers say are things that I want to go to? So when I was working at Nielsen, for instance, um, I, I thought like, I, I remember, so this is a client supplier, client relationship just out of college. And I remember being really intimidated working with client-side researchers. They seemed so like seasoned and knowledgeable. And I was like, oh man, I, I could never do that job. And people around me, you know, weren't client-side researchers either. They were, you know, becoming better analysts or becoming managers of analysts at Nielsen. And so I thought, oh, maybe that's where I want to go. And it wasn't until my wife actually is like, you know, Stephen, like you, your skill set lends itself pretty well to, you know, connecting ideas and working with cross-functional teams. And those are skill sets that might be valuable on the client side versus, you know, very detailed volume forecasting I was doing at Nielsen. Like you can do it, but like, is that something you really enjoy doing? I was like, oh, it's not, <laughs> it's not my favorite thing I'm going to admit. And so, um, it, and so it was really nice to have someone external, like suggest that I do that. And so by looking in, like, what is it that I really enjoy? What, where do I want to go? And sometimes that's very different than who you're currently surrounded with. And so ultimately that allowed me to apply to an MBA program that I knew focused on uh, consumer insights and ultimately land me an you know, internship at P&G and then a job at General Mills. And uh, that's you know paved a way to the client side that I find much more satisfying than I had before. And so I think that's, I wish I would have done that a little earlier of like, rather than look external, look inside, what do I care about? What are my values? What do I really enjoy? And really having the courage to go after that. I think that's excellent advice. Have a little more confidence in, uh, and think about what it is you really want to do. Exactly. Um, what are uh, some mistakes that you see businesses often make when it comes to pursuing customer insight research? Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of, one of the big issues when you're doing customer research is focusing on um, narrowing down the projects that are going to have the biggest impact and being careful of um, statistical significance versus, you know, meaningful significance. So um, once again, was working on a product category um, and this was a, a cleaning product as well. And um, basically this brand was hoping to uh, identify a new product that would appeal to this group of consumers that wasn't buying their brand currently, but would alienate 
um, their current buyers. So trying to, this is the classic trying to buy incrementality, right? Oh, if I launch this product, I want only new people to buy this and not my current brand users to buy it. Every, every brand's been trying to do this since the, the dawn of time, right? For innovation. And, um, and so they literally did testing where like, okay, you know, here's this new product and maybe it smells a little different. Maybe it cleans a little bit different. And it's like, okay, we think, and every time they would statistically test it, here's our current buyers. Here's our, you know, people who don't buy the brand right now. And statistically marketing researching, the percentages were like, oh, this is statistically different and liked more by the non-buyers than by your current brand buyers. And they do that over and over uh, throughout the innovation process. And so they thought like, great, I have a statistically different product that is going to be great. Um, and so they launched the product and they realized like, holy cow, our brand buyers love this thing and they, they're they fine with it. And that's a problem because then it's a cannibalization risk of their current brand buyers. It wasn't as incremental as they were hoping. And it's a classic example of, yeah, sure. So maybe, you know, 46% liking versus 42% liking, maybe that's statistically different if you have a large enough sample size. But practically speaking, I mean, it, it doesn't matter as much, right? And so unless you're going to like, so as long as it's still sold in the same stores, in the same aisle, often somewhat close to each other, you're going to be having um, overlap there. And so it's, um, I think sometimes we think a little too um, hopefully about research and where it can go. And you need a little bit of a, a practical approach to say, is this really going to make a difference in the real world? And that can help guide you in your research process. So don't forget the big picture as well as the 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 the, the focus uh, that you have on the research. Go back, take a step back, and look at the big picture. You know, yeah, exactly. What do you see on the horizon that you think is going to be impacting the way you do research moving forward and gaining customer insights? Yeah, I I think often uh, marketing research and customer insights is a little bit siloed. And so a company will come and say, oh, help us develop a new product. And you go and do your magic and come back to us with a new product or um, come up with a great advertising campaign. And you go off and you know, do some messaging research and come back like, here's the, the message you should use for your, or here's your TV commercial, right? And so it's a little bit siloed sort of doing that. I think the future is much more integrated and iterative. So I, you know, best in class companies today, sure, they would say, go off and do an advertising uh, message, come back, they would test it, then they would analyze, okay, what elements of this message are working? What are the best practices here? And then they would iterate, okay, how do we take, uh, take out this element, this element, and with our next iteration, make it even better. So this every single time you're measuring and doing it better, and suddenly your customer insights isn't just like, off in a room somewhere coming up with ideation, but they're really every time, okay, they're working with the, the marketing mix team, the marketing measurement team to understand what's working, what isn't. They're working with the sales team and understand like, okay, um, you know, what can we sell onto a different advertising platforms and where does that make a difference? They're working within the creatives to say, okay, that's a great idea, but how do we make sure it connects? So suddenly you're having to work cross-functionally and you're having to just iterate over time. And I think that's the future of insights rather than a siloed function. And what area of insights would you like to delve into further and why? Yeah, behavioral science, I think, is burgeoning and super interesting, right? So um, if you Google uh, behavior change wheel, um, some great research came out 12, 13 years ago, but basically it was this um, looking all across academic research and saying, what is all the research that has to do with behavior change? And basically creates this list of like, 40 or 50 different ways to change behavior, everything from, you know, punishment to incentives to, um, you know, changing the environment around you. And it's very nuanced and it has this whole map of things you can do. And I think that's sort of the holy grail of where we want to go. Cause so often we get a research product. It's like, Oh, uh, you know, uh, your members want X or your consumers want Y. And then how do we actually help inside behavior change in order to do some of those things? And I think there's also an ethics side 
where it isn't just this manipulative. I mean, because behavior science can be used for ill, right? If you look at, uh, you know, uh, armies or Nazi Germany, there was a lot of behavioral science that went into those really terrible things that they were doing to, to incentivize behavior, right? Um, and so how do we use it for good and to ultimately do something that uh, your members or your consumers want to do? And then how do you, you know, find something that is something that meets their needs as well as has a business uh, benefit as well. Do you think this area is ripe for more uh, investigation because of COVID as well? Do you think that that's really uh, accelerated the process of people wanting change and, and being driven by certain changes they want? Yeah, I mean, I think COVID from a, a health disease itself had some effect, effect. I think the bigger effect is really around, um, yeah, just change. So I think you're probably onto something there, right? Um, how I go to work and where I get my things done and what life is like with kids at homes and daycares are closed. Like all of that has made people really push the limits of what they thought was normal and what they could do. And so I think there's a lot more interest and willingness to try new things and maybe push boundaries than there was before. And I think we've yet to see the, the full extent of that. So who in the world of market insights would you love to have lunch with and why? Yeah. So uh, Kristen Luck, um, She's a pretty well-known person within the market research industry. She founded WIRE, the Women in Research organization. Um, she also used to work at Nielsen, I think, set up their like, online um, service way back when, when you know, online is a brand new thing, um, and, uh, and has also you know, done a lot of market research. And, and I think what's interesting is more recently is actually she's now an uh, investment banker. And so passed all the exams in order to get certified and is now helping like buy and, and sell and uh, negotiate with um, you know, the market research space. And so I love that idea. So for me, I connect in a lot of ways. I'm starting up um, a new organization is interesting. So I, I'm co-founding um, a, a job a career community for insights professionals called the Insight Network. And so it's super fun to put that together. And it's a similar kind of thing where it's like, it's, you know, I'm not making money off this. It's sort of like a personal passion project along with um, five other co-founders. And so it's just helping people who are trying to find jobs and insights and how do we create a community that we can foster that and, and find more. Um, so we created a website, you know, um, insightscareer.org. You can go and learn more about it, but that's been really fun. So there's a lot of connection there with uh, Kristen and, and Wire, uh, Women in Research. I'm like curious to, to hear more about that. And then I love uh, Kristen's perspective on always learning. Uh, not too many people in marketing research pivot and go into investment banking, especially in late career or mid-career. And uh, I would love to hear about her, her thoughts about that. I'm a big fan of lifelong learning. And so things like that, I think could be a, a really interesting lunch conversation. She was actually one of my first guests and I actually did a podcast with her, Kristen. I think I actually listened to it. So yeah, she did a great job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a great conversation with her. So yeah, she's a she's definitely a good one to talk to for sure. Um, but you know, you may have to see her in Greece. She, she travels to Greece and uh, you may have to go there for a nice Greek meal. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, it was a pleasure talking to you. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing us, uh, you know, your world of insights and how you pursue them. And I really appreciate it. It was, a, it was fun talking to you. Yeah, thanks so much. Really appreciate it, Darshan. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com. And make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.